Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. The Rips, we're live. Phil back here with us today. Um, not to be confused with Phil Brick. Um, that. Which we were correct. having a, a juvenile chuckle about earlier. Um, so uh, what are you drinking over there, Phil? So I've got a Bell's Oberon. It's a Michigan beer. It's a summer beer. Um, trying to keep the summer alive. So, Like a session ale? Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah? Nice. Yep. And they only release it in the summers here in Michigan. Beautiful. Oh, fantastic. What are, what are you drinking? Michael. Oh, I'm I'm actually got a little bit of the hair of the dog. And so I'm I'm going with a an Armagnac, something to, you know, brandy to try and soothe the, the throat and and uh try and make me feel a little bit better from I all can't the chit chatting. That Armagnac without a cigar, you know, yeah. that would really make the episode <laughs> true, if you true story. You, you know what? Cigar. Noted for next time. That's right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Do you want to say your little spiel? Yeah. Well, yeah, first of all, this is uh this is for fun and um and we will have wide, wide ranging conversations that may have some investment tone to them. But if you're going to take any of that, uh, please take that to a licensed professional before you put any of our advice to work anywhere. And uh, that, that, that'll allow us to have a nice open and wide ranging conversation. I will add, we have Richard joining us too. Richard Latterman will be joining us. So if he pops in and out and there's three or four uh, screens as we go along, don't worry about that. He'll jump into the conversation where he can. Uh, he's having a technical difficulty or issue, which is fine. That's hey, we're at we're at the bar. It's happy hour, and people come and go as as we uh, as we go through the uh, the time together. So I'm exactly. looking exactly. I was actually thinking maybe Rodrigo might join us after all oh. because I wonder if the base was his daughter had baseball this afternoon. Is that what it was? Rugby, sport ball, Adam. Oh, it's a, it's a okay. ball ball so, with yeah. sports. It's <laughs> but something you'll be unfamiliar with. We got a case with. on the island, a community. Um, uh, what do you call it? Community tra- transmission cool. case uh, yeah. of COVID on the island. So I was wondering if maybe some of the sports would be canceled this afternoon. But right. So, anyways, people come and go on this uh, show, and um, it's very informal. So, Phil, what you've been through quite a lot of change over the last few weeks and months. I remember reaching out to you maybe I don't know three or four months ago, and you saying, "Yeah, there's big changes ahead. I'd love to get this out of the way before." Um, we connect. So I think most of that is behind you, right? Like you've got, there's I don't know, I don't know about getting I've been looking forward to this for a while. So I'm, I'm excited, but yeah, it's a look, I mean, it's been everyone, you know, every single person in some way or another has had their year thrown into, uh, you know, has had their uh, nice and orderly plans for the year thrown up in the air, but, but us no less. So, you know, exponential ETFs, the firm I started for a little over four years ago, um, we had built in the company, we had built two ETFs. So one based on using proprietary customer satisfaction data. Another one that we're probably most well-known or infamous for is uh, the reverse cap weight ETF, which is the S&P 500 holdings just weighted by the reciprocal of the market cap, one over market cap um, and weighted that way. And what we had done beyond that was we built what's called an ETF sub-advisor business. And that is a business that uh, essentially we, we were an outsourced portfolio manager and capital markets desk. We managed the portfolio trading and the tax management rebalances and you know, a bunch of uh, wonky, nerdy stuff on behalf of other asset managers. Um, during the course of the last few months, we've 
sold uh, that that subadvisor business um, and in the process now of uh, separating the two funds from each other and uh, and kind of restructuring the whole thing. So I have a new uh, a new gig, a new company that we're going to be building up that I'm starting on Monday of next week. Super excited about it, but it has been. To say the least, it has been an adventurous time. It, also, in in that period of the last few months, there was a whole uh, a pivot to securities lending and a business plan that we had that we we're uh, raising capital for. So it's been it's been an adventure. Um, a lot of Zoom, <laughs> you know, a lot of uncertainty. Well, yeah, trying to do all that in a global pandemic as well um, yep, just yep. adds an extra dimension of flavor to the process. I'm sure, right? If it wasn't a challenge, it wouldn't be fun. That's what people say. But I can tell you it was a challenge and it was not fun. So yeah, I don't exactly. know. But, uh, so but everything, the... you know, everything works out well in the end somehow. So we, we got very fortunate. And um, you know, I'm very proud to announce that uh, Toroso Investments has acquired the exponential sub-advisor business. We did not lose a single job in our company. Everyone is now uh, who had been on the trading capital market side is now employed by Toroso. And uh, combining that sub-advisor business with Toroso as a firm and the other services that they offer on the distribution side and on the product white labeling side really makes a very formidable uh, offering for them. So really proud of that and really glad that you know, everything landed well and, you know, super excited, super excited for everything that's to come. Well, congratulations and cheers uh, for the Thanks. completion of your, your deal. And, um, cheers. I wonder, I wonder if, if Phil, you could probably, if you could paint a, just a brief arc of your uh, history, because you've got, you know, you've got quite a history in ETFs and maybe tie that together with just so the listeners who may not know you all can, can pull all that together in a, in a, in a more uh, concrete narrative. Cause you know, you've, you've gone quite a journey and it'll, it'll relate to us discussing a little bit more of entrepreneurialism too, as we go through. Uh, today's sure. uh, you know i have i've, I've really uh, been through kind of the the earliest stages of ETFs. I'm very lucky to be in the right place in the right time and see the growth and then you know while etfs are still growing like weeds and wildly popular from a, a commercial standpoint there are some challenges now with the etf space that i think are widely known but we could we could certainly talk about but to see that whole life cycle of you know a new and exciting you know investment vehicle that everyone is just you know overly bullish on and and you know the you know, the future is so bright and to see that come to full maturity and then get to the other side of it where now all of a sudden there's consolidation and you know, major fee pressure and, and you know, uh, um, uh, less of a dispersion of, you know, the, I'll say ETFs were once called the Silicon Valley of, of the finance world by Eric Balchunas, which I always loved. I don't think that's still the case. And, and to see that whole life cycle of that come to fruition and then go the other way was, was quite a journey. It's really something interesting. But you know, look, I started my career back in the day in, you know, right at the, um, right after the dot-com bubble um, as a trader, as a proprietary day trader, when such a thing existed. And, you know, I showed up for, for an interview and they said, all right, you have a pulse, good enough. They said they were hiring on the desk a, a number of, like a dozen traders. And they believed that there were, you know, there's something about being able to let your winner run and and be able to take a loss immediately. There's something about that that is inherent to your personality and they can't teach it, you can't train it, but some people have it. And they were looking for that needle in a haystack trader that had it. So they were just like, all right, we'll, we'll register you for the Series 7. If you pass it, come back, you have a job. If you didn't pass it, we don't want to hear from you again. And that was how I got started. And, you know, of course, that was like, that was the end. I mean, they were wrong about their thesis. The, the day trading bubble really collapsed in that point. And when I started... There were like 75 traders at the company on the desk. And it was just pure momentum trading, scalping. When was that, Phil? Sorry? When? When? What year? This was uh, 01. 01 okay. or 02. 
Um, and and there, there was uh, an MD who, who had left his practice to day trade. I mean, there were people that, you know, had given up these, these great careers. It was fun. It was like playing a video game. And, you know, you're up and down. It was a lot of fun. But, uh, and, and there were people who were making big money. But, of course, you know, no human can be faster than an algorithm, right? And no human can be more disciplined, certainly, than an algorithm. So, you know, 75 traders on the desk when I started within three to six months, there were like 11 of us left. I mean, it was just, you know, every week you'd show up and, and four desks would be empty. And, you know, people either blew up their accounts or just decided to go do something else. So um, that was like my first entry into the market. And, and I, I was at a cocktail party or some, I was at some event. Somebody said to me, Phil, you're a trader. What should I invest in? Now, you know, I'm like in and out of, you know, whatever is volatile. Like I, I was trading a lot of uh, um, semiconductors and stuff like that back then. But I mean, th- that wasn't investing, right? It's like the furthest thing in yeah. the world, literally just playing a video game. So I said, like, oh, you know, just buy a portfolio of low-cost ETFs. And in that circle of people that were talking was another person who I had not yet met, but a hedge fund manager who said, wow, I can't believe you said that. Nobody knows what an ETF is. I'm about to start a company based on that. It's going to do... It, we did what would now be called like an ETF strategist, but basically building portfolios of ETFs. And I ended up uh, uh, joining them and working as an analyst, uh, you know, made my way up to a company called Ridex Investments in Maryland mm. and product development. So I built alternative mutual funds and ETFs uh, for them, product management, product development. And one of the products that I was the product manager for some time on was RSP, the equal weight S&P 500. And I spent a lot of time thinking about you know, that, that premium, how is that alpha of equal over market cap? Why is that? Why is that, you know, persistent, more or less persistent, but, but what is, you know, is it just the small cap tilt? And if so, you know, why, why, you know, relatively, why would you want to be in large cap at all, essentially? And, and, you know, what about the rebalance mechanism where you're, you're profit taking from your winners and you're buying your losers and, and all those things. And, and, you know, ultimately that's what led to um, the idea to do the reverse cap weight ETF. But, um, in 2010, I left, uh, I left Radix right around the time we got acquired by Guggenheim to join the New York Stock Exchange to work on the ETF, uh, the ETF business there. So we had an ETF listing business. You're working with ETF product developers and issuers on, on getting the product onboarded onto the exchange. You're working with the regulators on market structure initiatives, uh, working with market makers on, on capital markets issues. And, you know, just it was an incredible place to be. And I was so fortunate to be in that seat at that time, I ended up spending six years there. And over the course of those six years, ETFs really ballooned. I mean, that would be from um, 2010 to 2016. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be able to have that inside view into, you know, the, the market structure process, the SEC and FINRA and how things are moving, you know, I mean, people don't realize there's a dozen divisions within the SEC itself. Uh, some are more or less knowledgeable about certain areas of the business. Some require approvals and some don't. I mean, there's a whole intricate web there. And, you know, there's also the market structure. I mean, you've got major issues going on right now, fragmentation and, you know, market maker uh, incentives, which are, you know, really light to the point where it's, a, I believe, a systemic risk in the market. And, you know, there, there's a bunch going on there that really gave me an inner seat to the industry and allowed me to, you know, really meet people all over the industry and, and work on ETFs and then started exponential ETFs here in Michigan in 2016. Wow. So what was it? I mean, in Michigan, right? So you, you weren't, did you always, were you always working in Michigan or you were traveling around at, to be at the various company headquarters or? I'm a New Yorker, you know, I'm, I'm a New Yorker originally and I, I'd been in New York for, for just about all my life. But uh, for family reasons, I, I had to come back to, uh, to move to, 
um, Michigan, or at least I had to split my time. Here. So um, I'd gone through a divorce and, and I have uh, children from my first marriage. And uh, really, they more than I did, they had to be here in Michigan for family reasons. So, you know, the question was, do I fly back and forth for my whole life or do I try to build a life here? And I was very lucky again in that uh, NYC allowed me to work remotely from Michigan for a year. I'd been there already for four or five years. Um, and then I did a year remote. And, and, you know, that was great. I did Monday to Thursday in New York. And then I flew back and was here with the kids on the weekend, uh, did Fridays from home. Um, but after a year or so, it started to really take a tax and, and, and a toll. And, you know, it was hard to do. So, you know, I, I had two things going on at once. I, I had been looking to do something entrepreneurial really my whole life. And, and you know, I had a couple opportunities that came up that I'd been researching. I, you know, had this, this moment. I had a, um, uh, a pituitary tumor that required two surgeries and, and you know, had some major health scares. And at the same time, got into this, um, you know, people talk about like, you know, the belly of the beast during the hero's journey. Like I got into this point in my life and, and, and emerged from it and came out of it and came out of it because, you know, I was very fortunate that the two surgeries were a success and I had my health and I had a renewed outlook on life. And, you know, a lot of things that I just put off that I said, well, you know, that's something I'd like to do. And I'll probably do that one day, but you know, that day just never comes. Um, I had a renewed outlook where it's like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do, it. I'm not going to let fear hold me back. And, 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 you know, I think, even today, a lot of the things that I'll say online or different things, you know, I just decided I'm not going to I'm not going to hold back based on what I think uh, a future job opportunity might be or how I'm perceiving my career. I'm just going to I'm just going to be truthful and be honest and call things the way I see it. And and, you know, take whatever uh, next steps I think are the right steps to take without fear, just removing fear out of the equation. Right. What is the best it. thing for and, and 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 that's really what what led to, you know, starting the 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 company, but but you know, in the course of researching different opportunities, there are two opportunities, two different business plans that I was going to run with in 2016. And you know, the the key thing for me was to to do it here in Detroit. We actually started in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but to do it here locally, um, you know, just after after having spent a year flying back and forth, I, I really wanted to you know build up my own company, my own culture, my own you know uh, you know build something the right way here, which I I, I know some people do well remotely now that everyone's remote and, and, you know, with that market, but I, I felt like I, you know, really wanted to have that local presence as part of the identity. I love it. So, so I, I love that journey too. And, and so you had a near death experience that gave you the insight into the limited nature of all of our journeys, which then I think crystallized um, your ability to take risks or to be, you know, just to be okay with, letting her fly and just, just having a go at it. And maybe you can just talk about, so, you know, you start trading very entrepreneurial, uh, then, uh, kind of ride X would be, I mean, they were, I guess they were a startup when you got there, you go through the journey with them to a large company, then you go to sort of, uh, the, the, the and I guess was the, the exchange you went to at that point. So yes. another sort of large, very large company. And then you, you strike out to be an entrepreneur and um, like, how, what goes into that decision? How would you advise um, young and old? I think I think there are there are different challenges if you're talking to someone who's young and thinking about being an entrepreneur, and even someone who's getting older. I mean, the, the proclivity is to as you as you get older um, to not take the risks, right? But how do you encourage that continued risk taking as as you go through the ages? What what would you say to that? And how, how what was your personal you know, what, what were some more insights into your personal decisions and journey making there? 
I mean, that's a that's a difficult question to answer because the smarter thing, the rational thing is to get a job at a big company and to keep your head down and play the political game and rise through the ranks and live very comfortably. You know, that that is, you know, by any measure, that is the smarter, more logical decision. Right. But there are certain people and, you know, if you're one of them. Right. And and I think, you know, do I don't want to watch black and white. I want to watch a movie in color. I want to feel I want to I want to really, you know, my, my career is, is important to me. What I'm doing is something I'm passionate about. And I want to, you know, really feel it and experience it more. And the difference between, you know, working and I've, I've worked at both the difference between working at an entrepreneurial you know, company, and that doesn't necessarily mean being a founder and entrepreneur, but just being in that environment, like you said, Rydex is a perfect example, is already a big company, but very entrepreneurial, um, versus being in a big bureaucratic organization is night and day. It's a totally different thing. I mean, the skill set that survives at a big corporation is a political mindset, is a CYA mindset, it, and not to say people don't work hard and do great things and they're thorough, but it's a very different thing than trying to carve something from nothing. It is a lot harder. Uh, it's a lot more all-encompassing. If you're at a startup, you can't, you know, there's no weekends. There's no, there's no nights. You, you're thinking about things before you go to sleep and you're thinking about them when you wake up and, you know, you're putting your heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears into it. And people need to be honest with themselves if that is truly for them or not. Um, I think telling everyone that, oh, it's better to go be an entrepreneur and not everyone is cut out for it. And I saw that with Exponential where a lot of people, when they started, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a startup type guy too. You know, I'd love to come work with you. And in a couple instances we saw, well, it really wasn't the case, you know, and, and, you know, not that people, they thought of themselves that way, but once you really experience it, it's different. Um, but I think there is no higher calling than to be an entrepreneur. You're creating, I mean, you're, you're creating something, you're creating something lasting, you're creating jobs, you're creating efficiency, something that your clients whatever business it is, there are clients who, who want it and that's how it succeeds. Um, and it's, it's just a very, you know, a very different mindset. I think um, Taleb, Nassim Taleb has had a very big impact on my thinking as well. And, you know, skin in the game is a really, I think, a, a, an, I mean, he lays out the case a hundred different ways in that book, you know, about having agency, about having skin in the game, of course, as it's called. But, you know, the difference between being, um, you know, a bureaucrat making decisions without living with the consequences and putting your name on the door and having those consequences um, be, you know, really vital to, you know, critical to, to what happens. It's, it's a totally different thing. And I think it really can make you feel more alive and, and, and proud of what you do. Um, but it is hard. It is hard. And it's truly not for everyone. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of, you know, say that it is or that, you know, every, it, it, it's the right path for every, every person. How have you? Well, it is a different journey, right? Because yeah. I mean, if you think about a somebody who rises up the the corporate ranks, right? That like the 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 current the status quo for a C suite at major companies is heads I win, tails you lose, right? It's it's um, there's no shared risk on the downside, and there's leveraged participation on the upside, right? Um, the difference between that and entrepreneur and entrepreneurship is, yeah, there's there's linear exposure to the success of the business on the upside, but there's the same linear exposure to the business on the downside. Right. And, uh, so you're legitimately taking this, taking on this risk personally. And, uh, it, it does take a very different type of personality, um, to be able to endure that and sleep at night and get up and get excited to knock down challenges every day when you go to work. Right. And you gotta yeah, be like a jack of trades. Investors, any startup has investors. It's not, you know, necessarily, 
certainly not all their capital. In some cases, it might not be any of their capital. But the investors, they're not just random investors that bought your stock. These are people that believed in you. These are people that you pitched that, hey, here's my vision. This is my team. This is my plan. They said, you know what? I'm going to write you a check, even though all you are, are a couple of guys with a, with a pitch deck. Those are people that believed in you. So any, you know, any founder worth their, you know, worth that title is going to be obsessively focused on proving those people right and making them, you know, feel like they bet on the right horse and, and they made the right decision. So it's an enormous, you know, pressure and responsibility. And then, you know, you also have employees that come in the end and say, hey, you know, I'm going to turn down the corporate job. I'm going to come with you on this journey, you know, and, and you know, you want to you want them to be rewarded for that. And it's, it's hard. That's how most startups do fail. Have, have What's the you... vision? Go ahead. No. What's the vision now with the acquisition uh, from Toroso and, and and where is the entrepreneurial mindset headed from here in this uh, environment, uh, especially with what Adam was describing and this and the notion of skin in the game, as you rightly pointed out. So I, I can't speak for Toroso, but I can tell you, having worked with them for some time, that they are extremely entrepreneurial minded and. You know, when you look at the ETF space, you've got these major, you know, huge corporations, right? So you've got, you know, I mean, forget about obviously BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street who are dominating on the, you know, in terms of assets and flows. But you also have uh, like DFA just announced they're coming in with a large cap U.S. fund at 12 basis points. That That's cost. They're coming in at cost. Bank of New York Mellon is not a small company. They recently launched ETFs at zero fee, truly zero fee. So you're not only competing against, you know, Pimpco and Templeton and, you know, all these different people, you're also competing against, you know, for whatever reason, that just happens to be the area of the market that got commoditized that people are willing to do for a loss or for cost to bring in business elsewhere. So it's really, really difficult in order to compete. You have to be super differentiated, right? In, in a number of ways, in terms of the product and in terms of, you know, your investment philosophy, but also in terms of distribution and how you, you know, how you work with your partners, you really have to think differently and outside the box to stay ahead of these guys. And that's something that Toroso does and does really well. So they're behind a bunch of the funds. I know you had the uh, RPAR uh, guys uh, on the show here. Uh, Toroso has helped them in terms of operations and back office. Um, they've worked on a number of the uh, more innovative new ETFs, and they've worked with a, n- a number of the more entrepreneurial-minded um, companies. Uh, me personally, I'm I'm not uh, going to be working with Toroso. I'm going to be making an announcement next week. Um, I guess anyone who's this deep into it, uh, maybe yeah, I don't know. We're 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 kind of holding the announcement for for a little bit to try to make a splash. But I'm going to be joining um, an advisory firm that's uh, really upending the annuity distribution space here, based here out of Detroit, but using technology to do so. Um, and uh, I'm going to be chief investment officer and building with them. And a lot of the stuff that we've been building, the capital market services that we've been doing, so not just the, the trading and the, you know, the sub-advisory and the capital markets, but also the securities lending, and a lot of the, the you know, next, uh, next layers of services that we've been planning out to, to offer, um, we're going to be building together uh, as part of this group here in Detroit. So you know, super excited about it, and uh, it is very much um, – you know, an entrepreneurial. So, you know, we're, we're coming fresh off our, uh, our almost next round will be our series A. So, you know, it's still very early stage. Congratulations. Is that going to be a, um, an ETF? Like, is there an ETF tie in there with, with annuities? Are you trying to, to wrap annuities into an ETF structure or anything related to that? Or, or is it more, um, like FinTech enabling the distribution of and pricing of annuities through the internet or something? It's, it's going to be a fintech focus. Um, there will be uh, some investing aspects to it as well, but it's going to be a fintech focus, uh, not, not ETFs. So 
you know, after, after a long time, after, I guess, 15 years now, I'll be um, out not directly in the ETF industry. Is it, is it going to be the same concept, though, that ETFs brought to the investment world that you're going to be trying to bring to the insurance world, sort of the democratization, if you will, or the, 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 the further clarity for, you know, the fees and charges with respect to annuities and, and that type of thing? Is that the plan or is that sort of what's the objective, I guess? I'm, I'm speculating on what the objective is, just given your experience. And yeah, and, and we all know where the world's headed in the financial services space, right? Mm-hmm. You know, things are becoming more efficient, more integrated, uh, more cost efficient. And, you know, look, uh, advisors, they themselves, you know, are are under, you know, a lot of sales pressure. There's a lot of saturation there. And, and you know, the last thing advisors want to be do is spending, uh, want to do is spend all day, you know, integrating different investments from different, from different sites and different accounts. Um, and certainly, I think the the traditional fee structure on annuity distribution has, you know, as Bezos says, your margin is my opportunity. And, you know, it's certainly left uh, some opportunities available there. So, uh, it, you know, we're going to be focused heavily on, on that. Right. So as I understand it in the insurance world, the, the big costs are the medical, uh, the lapsed policies, um, things like that, that, that there's a, there is a tremendous opportunity to think about, um, you know, insurance being bought rather than sold because the salesman's commission is another major part of the expense of, of insurance. So uh, I, I, I think that certainly insurance is one of the last bastions of this, this uh, investment, because it is an investment to some degree, this investment world where it's shrouded in a whole bunch of really complicated things that nobody can understand, an MTAR line and the taxation that occurs and how it accrues and over what duration and how insurance companies can average their returns over 10 years. And, and so it's all very complex. It's extraordinary. It's beyond the comprehension of any investor so if you talk about a, a, a 500 stocks representing the S&P 500 or any investment scheme that was an ETF, it pales in comparison to the complexity of insurance products. And they are sold at, you know, at, at very, very, not very high fees, but higher fees. So is, is, that, is that what we're going to, I would love to see it attacked, but <laughs> I mean, attack yeah. is the wrong word. I would love to see the consumer empowered through a better offering that allowed them to uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, enjoy better pricing and a more fluid, free, open market. I think uh, democratize is the buzzword. Democratize, that's the word. Damn it! But you're 100 percent right. I mean, there there are complexities and and the sales process. I mean, there's a reason why you know people will pay to take you know seniors to take blue hairs out to dinner and buy them steaks and you know try to sell them these expensive annuities. It's just an area of the market where the product, the the idea of the product. You know, getting the guaranteed income stream has an appeal to a certain mm-hmm. investor. Um, there are tax advantages, a very elegant and, and you know, nice investment approach in some ways. In other ways, it's kind of been corrupted, right? So that, and that leaves opportunities to do it more efficiently, to do it better, to do it, you know, with a more cost efficient, uh, in a more cost efficient manner. Um, so, you know, we plan to capitalize on those opportunities. Oh, that's exciting. The of the investors. That's exciting. Yeah, the, um, the the whole annuity space is, is is a big mystery to me. I've always I've always thought that the, the the privatization of retirement was one of the major policy errors of the last century, and and one of the mm-hmm. reasons for that is that one of the benefits of traditional pensions is pooled mortality risk, right? So you if if every investor needs to save and manage their their own retirement, then they need to 
um, invest and spend as though, you know, they need to budget the risk of living to 100 or 105 or 110 or 150. Who knows what sort of life uh, lifespan expanding healthcare or technologies are going to uh, come come uh, to market over the next little while. So, you know, I, I always wondered why annuities were not just a default option for for most retirement plans. And I think that a lot of it's just incentives, right? They, typically, it, the when you sell an annuity, it's off book. For If you're an advisor, you sell an annuity, it's off book. And so you, and, and the fee you get paid on it is just Pretty not low. very high relative to the idea of keeping it on book, et cetera, right? But so are you going to try to address some of these challenges then? From the actuarial side, so, you know, when, when you talk about, you know, life expectancy increasing, I remember so like like 10 years ago, there was this whole big wave of people buying um, life insurance policies. So like, I think uh, there were a lot of HIV patients at the time who were targeted. They said, okay, you have HIV, you need money now for treatments. Um, but I, as the acquirer of your insurance company who, who wants to get the benefit, I can then get this great return because your life expectancy is small and, you know, I'll give you the money now that you need now, but ultimately I'll get the death benefit. And all those companies lost their shirts because, I mean, thank, you know, thank God and net net, you know, that, uh, you know, medicine came out and, and, you know, the life expectancy of HIV patients increased dramatically and, you know, kind of good because people, it's pretty grim to be on the other side of that bet. Um, so there's a lot, you know, there's a lot kind of going on there. And, and, and you look now at the potential for inflation, the way a lot of annuities are priced. You've got variable annuities tied to different assets, but, you know, very few that are tied directly to inflation. So, you know, when you think about, well, what, what is the investor in annuities? What do they really want? What are they trying to do? Right. They're, maybe they're less concerned about uh, leaving a retirement or le- leaving, um, you know, leaving something behind. But, um, you know, they still want to have that security for the rest of their lives and security right. on the so right, so the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You want your your food, your shelter. You cover that off through your government benefits, maybe your company company pension. You add an annuity on it, then you take the rest of the investments that you have, and you have those other aspirational type uh, parts of the of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs that can be realized. But first and foremost, you need to have your food and shelter. Um, right. So you know, I, I think that's that, that's great. I I look forward to seeing. Um, that because I think that would, you know, if there's a, a higher general understanding of how annuities can benefit the end investor, um, I think net net that probably gives more long term capital to the markets. Because if you're taking a portion of your portfolio and you're saying, okay, I'm going to cover off the, the lower levels of the Maslow hierarchy of needs, and I'm going to assure that through these various vehicles. That sort of, sort of assures that those longer term aspirational, you know, this money is for my kids, this money is for something else down the road. It, it, it gives more certainty to that actually happening. So it's, yep. I think it's a, it could be a great benefit to to um, uh, you know sort of investment advisors and and uh, and clients and things like that. That's really interesting. I, I think it's an underutilized tool, quite mm-hmm. honestly. Totally. Other um, than the. Go ahead. No, I, I was. If you had something on this topic, go, go for it. I was just going to ask him. Other than the insurance uh, facet of it, what are some of the other uh, uh, areas that you're hoping to disrupt through this fintech endeavor? 
So there, there are other areas, <laughs> but but we're going to be building them in, in in stealth mode for for a bit. So until uh, until we you know until we launch them and have some announcements. So I love you know, it. If you the, tell us uh, you have to kill us, is that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, there's really there's nobody else here. You can... <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's just us girls. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay, well, I guess we've sort of reached the point where we can't really discuss any more details on that. But I am interested yeah. in, in pulling on another thread that you um, you laid down earlier about what sounded like a thesis about, if not the twilight of the ETF um, life cycle as a technology, but maybe the sort of the maturation. So I'd love to, to pull on that a little bit. Where are you going with that? And, and what are you seeing? Well, for a while, it, you know, what... what seemed to be happening, or at least what, what I thought was happening, was a bit of a convergence between active and passive management, where, you know, discretionary active, you know, the idea that you're going to pay for an expensive mutual fund, and the mutual fund manager is going to say, well, you know, I look the CEO in the eye, and, and you know, by the strength of his handshake, I could tell that's a winner, and a bet on that stock. I mean, those days are done, right? And active funds now, uh, active mutual funds, by and large, they're, they're, to you know, to some extent, they're algorithmic based, right? You've got some sort of filter, you've got some sort of weighting mechanism, and maybe you're going to make discretionary decisions on top of that. But for the most part, they're largely built on algorithms. Well, ETFs are, are entirely built on algorithms. I'm not talking about actively managed ETFs, and there are some, but I'm talking about what, what's you know become known as smart beta. So, if you take, if you accept on its head that indexing has some benefits, and if you accept that the ETF structure has some benefits, and it does, it has some tax benefits. Um, that are you know kind of wonky, but particularly here in the U.S., um, then you know the question is, well, how do you want to access the best investment uh, thesis or the best investment strategy on a going forward basis? It doesn't necessarily mean that passive market cap weighted indexing is the best way to go. You can still do it in a rules based, systematic way. You can still find ways to invest that will give you a better forward looking risk return profile than market cap weighting. And it hasn't been that way the last couple of years. But that's an anomaly. Looking, you know, historically, um, there are very simple value momentum filters. There's, you know, equal weighting, of course, as, as I talked about, uh, is you know, historically over like 40, 40 years of S&P data at a 65% batting average. So two thirds of the time, it'll outperform market cap weight um, and, and do it by almost 200 basis points annually. Um, so, you know, the convergence of active and passive is that, well, if, if, any, anybody can pile into to a passive, and I want to say passive market cap weighted, market cap weighted index fund. Well, I, I want to do one better. I want to, I want to, you know, I want to optimize. I want to have a, uh, I want to have some alpha. I want to have a better risk return profile. Well, the best way to do that is in, is utilizing the ETF. You get some tax benefits. What happened, what, what, or at least what I think happened to, to a degree is, you know, that you had a proliferation of these smart beta funds and strategies and multi-factor all over the place. Uh, single factor funds, different thematic funds and ideas, and some of them are great ideas. More than the, the you know the uh, more than I, I think there was a lot of decision fatigue, and there were a lot of people who you know were, were a little bit overwhelmed. There was a very heavy push by the issuer side. It was almost like a you know like a jump ball, um, and everyone's trying to grab all the assets that everyone saw coming over as models move from mutual funds to ETFs, and then you get a run of market cap weight. Where all of these smart beta strategies underperform for for a couple of years, and you know you have a lot of advisors and institutional investors that look back like, ah, you know, I kind of gave this thing a shot and it didn't really pan out. So you know they're kind of going the other way. Another thing that happened is the industry started to eat itself. 
So, you know, Goldman Sachs famously came out with uh, GSLC with a, with a multi-factor smart beta fund at nine basis points. And their idea was, well, you know, we still have an opportunity to be the vanguard of smart beta. And, you know, this, this follows, so of course, you have Vanguard is, you know, basically at cost, slightly above cost. Schwab came out and launched ETFs and said, we're not going to price it for break-even today. We're going to price it for break-even at full maturity. So, you know, at uh, $2 trillion of assets, then what's our cost? Our cost is all the way down here. So they're willing to lose in the beginning of years to make money on the back end. And they came in super low cost to compete with, with uh, Vanguard. iShare is trying to compete with Vanguard. So they come out with their core products, get cheaper and cheaper. So then you got people that are late to the game. So now JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs come in and say, well, we can't miss this whole ETF train. Uh, all the flows are going into these low cost products. How are we going to get in? That's why you get a two basis point fund from JP Morgan and a zero basis fund from Bank of New York and, and on and on. Now, all these models or all these companies are planning, well, the only way we can get to scale is by being super low cost. It's the only model that's proven to work. It worked for Vanguard, it worked for Schwab, it worked for iShares. The only way to do it is to be in, you know, as low as we can possibly be. There's not enough scale in the market. There's not enough scale to feed all of those business plans. So when JP Morgan and Boney and BlackRock and Pimco, and when, when, when you have 10 funds all chasing the same low cost, there's just not enough scale to go around to make them all, you know, what would be called liquid in the eyes of the investor, which is not ETF. When you look at volume and assets, there's just not enough. Um, so they start, you know, against each other. Well, okay, I'll, I'll you know, one-up you on basis points. I'll one-up you. And, and until you get to a point where there's just no... Uh, no profit to be made. And, and if you look at ETF issuers, and there's a feeling out there, people think, well, their assets are so high, they're making a lot of money. But if you look at it on a revenue basis, right? If you, if you look at ETFs on a, on, a, on a, I mean, it's very simple. Just take market cap and expense ratio. It's all publicly available. Um, there are firms that are making great money, right? You've got uh, pro shares and direction are making great money. Um, you've got, you know, firms like uh, First Trust and Global X that have you know, really found their niche and their core audience, but the vast majority of firms, even a lot of very high asset firms, are not making a lot of money at all. And it's just gotten incredibly competitive. Another, another problem there is uh, intellectual, intellectual property protection, which is something I've talked about often, where there was, in the first half of my career, there was, I don't know about a gentleman's agreement, but there was, it was frowned upon to steal somebody's IP outright. It was, just, it was just something that, you know, yeah, okay, fine, look, you could have a thousand Ben Graham disciples that are all value investors, but to do something that's like deliberately stealing from somebody else what they're doing was not really done. Uh, those rules have gone by the wayside, and now people are willing to do it to the point where uh, you know there's one story that that you know will make your stomach turn. There's a, a young entrepreneur launched launched a fund. This is probably about 2014 or 15. Um, started to do really well, thematic fund, uh, good timing, and a gatekeeper for uh, one of the large wirehouse banks called up another ETF issuer that he's a great relationship with, whatever that means, um, called up the product group there and said, hey, you know, a couple of my advisors want to buy this thing. I haven't approved it. Why don't you launch something similar that I can approve? Um, and, and, and the wirehouse gatekeeper actually gave the idea of the fund to the company. They launched it. They, you know, he approved it. And, uh, you know, that fund has exponentially more assets than the original. Um, in what other industry can that be done? I mean, yeah, I, I guess, you know, you hear complaints that Amazon steals somebody's, you know, product idea or, you know, you see it done, but it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty awful you know, to see it happen to an entrepreneur. Um, so there's a lot of factors that are working against um, the, the business side of things. There's also, like I said, when you have saturation, 
it just gets very difficult. It's hard for, for investors and advisors to really, you know, get a handle on all the funds and to understand them. So a lot of them rely on what I think are very lazy metrics. You know, well, what, what are the assets? You know, are people coming into it? And not what is my forward expectations on a risk return basis? What are the assets? You know, what's the historical performance? Okay. Um, but it, it just it seems like the, the idea of trying to find a better way to invest, trying to find a creative, interesting, better way that's going to give you and your clients a better risk return profile on a forward-looking basis, that's like eighth on the list. And maybe that's the product of a stock market that's up every year without any, you know, God forbid, we get 5% pullback from all-time highs. The Fed comes in and saves, saves everyone and nobody's worried. So nobody's really worried about eating out alpha. Nobody's really worried about trying to, you know, enhance, get another 1% here or there. Um, so they default to these other things. And, and it just makes it a very, very difficult market. To well, I think also regulations have played a role here, you know, where um, there's such a focus on costs now, you know, that you've really got to go out on a limb from a compliance standpoint in order to put a fund in a portfolio that costs more than a few basis points because it's just such, such a proliferation of products that you can access. And the regulators are not really equipped to differentiate between value funds or, you know, between factor funds or what have you. If you've got a, a value fund that's available for three basis points and another one that you're considering for 30 basis points, then, you know, you do put yourself at risk, I guess, at investing in the 30 basis point one, even though maybe there's craftsmanship in that in that uh, product that actually give you a reason of higher expectancy net of costs. There's, you know, the regulations just, just complicate those decisions. And, you know, as you say, there's been such a proliferation of everybody sort of scrambling over one another into what are essentially the same factor products. You know, you've got sort of fundamental indexing and the DFA model have now taken on a life of its own, right? And, you know, we've been doing some thinking internally about um, what the impact, the, the, the adaptive nature of markets, what the impact is of such a gargantuan tidal wave of capital flowing into very, very similar strategies that are selecting securities with very similar characteristics. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but it seems to me if you sort of go back to first principles on why do these excess returns or edges um, exist in the first place? Well, clearly there are investors that are either making systematic mistakes or more likely just have non-wealth maximizing preferences that are causing them to select securities or, or deselect securities with certain characteristics, right? And by by then deselecting or, or, or underpricing those securities, it gives so-called factor investors the, uh, the ability to go in and, and sort on those characteristics and then buy those securities and, and, and then arbitrage that gap in expected returns to earn a uh, premium. But, you know, obviously there's a, there is a cohort of investors that have made those decisions, expressed those preferences, have de-emphasized stocks with those characteristics, but there's not an unlimited amount of capital deployed by that cohort of investors that are expressing those preferences, right? Like it, it just makes intuitive sense that eventually the amount of arbitrage capital is going to overwhelm the capital that was originally investing in these, um, in, in these strategies that were creating the premium in the first place, right? So if you've got enough arbitrage capital that are investing in stocks with certain characteristics, those characteristics may have um, implied higher returns before, 
But now you'd almost expect the sign to flip on those premia. And, and now stocks with those characteristics would be expected to have negative excess returns, right? And so I, I wonder, and I'm sort of, you know, I'm looking at the value premium, the small cap value premium over the last several years, the, these multi-factor funds, the multi-alternative funds. And it's been just an incredible, you know, negative one or negative two sharp ratio straight line down. Um, and so do you have any thoughts on whether there's just, this has become overgrazed, factor investing has become overgrazed and now the sign is flipped and we need to find some sort of equilibrium before there's going to be some premium again. And when it does come, it's probably going to be much lower than what was implied by some of the early back tests. So there's actually been a lot of research on this, uh, on, on the crowding factor and you know how you know, crowding into a, a strategy does in fact reduce your, your forward-looking expectations. We kind of saw this play out in a, a micro level with the low vol uh, strategy, the low volatility funds. Um, what was it like uh, 2000, early 2019, late 2018? But at some point over the last year or two, there was a huge influx of assets into uh, the two biggest low vol strategies, the iShares and uh, the Vesco uh, funds. And iShares have been promoting it you know, really really hard and they were successful and they got a ton of assets to come in. And then, you know, as soon as that kind of leveled off, all of a sudden, so did performance. And, you know, there's a number of factors and reasons why that might be. I don't think it's necessarily entirely because um, you know, everything had been crowded in, but there, there certainly is that effect. If you put buying pressure on a set of stocks or a factor, it's going to have an impact. I mean, the algo that you're trading against doesn't care. Right. And there's no, there's been like no mechanism in the market to, you know, to, to have a true up to intrinsic value. So like Tesla is a good example. So, you know, market makers are just making markets based off the, you know, the, the, the options Greeks, right? And you can push these things around that way, but there's nobody to say, well, hold on a minute. Maybe this company, even in the most opti- optimistic scenario, is not worth X, it's worth Y. Okay, well, the market doesn't care. There's no, how does that, you know, where's the true up? And I think that's why a lot of value investors have gotten smoked because there's just been no true up back to intrinsic value where I think we see um, stocks moving because of buying pressure is just the relentless, relentless flow of assets into market cap weighted. And, I, you know, to me, I think market cap weighted is a factor just like anything else. And that's part, one of the thesis on reverse cap is, well, you know, the reciprocal to market cap, you say market cap itself is a factor is non-optimized, then in a zero-sum world, one minus that, if it's non-optimized, is you know, it's taking that extra that extra alpha. Um, but you know, you can't market cap new money coming into market cap waves is you know, buys high, buys high, buys high, wherever the market is. And as long as there's new flows coming into that strategy, and I don't know when that's ever going to end, if ever. And I'm not just talking about ETFs. So, you know, there's also options that that you know are all tied to the S&P, there's futures, there's direct indexing, there's, you know, an unknown amount of institutional money that is market cap weighted internally. Um, and until that slows down, it's just really hard to, to get to that true up, to get to that point where, um, okay, Apple, Apple's a great company. It's a great company, right? But maybe it's a little overpriced here, right? Maybe the Amazon PE should be somewhere below, I don't know, say 250. I mean, you know, there's a level, there's a point at which a great company is still overpriced. And there's no mechanism now in the market to find that level, to find the level. Well, you know what? I liked it. Uh, I, I really like the stock at this market cap, but now it's 10% higher. I no longer like it. It's the opposite now. People think the opposite. They think, well, you know, I liked it there, but now it's running up. Now I really like it yeah. on a momentum play. It's, it's the Vernon Smith, the price. 
the price that you bought at and the new price is higher than that price. And that's what justifies the buying of the new price, which is higher, which then reinforces the the, the previous purchase and more purchases. It, it's that reflexive nature that, that markets are going through. And as you're on this arc, we did have a question um, as to, you know, what is, why does the reverse kappa perform equal weight and general market cap weight? And I know you're going into that, so you might as well just address this in an extra sentence or two as you, as you roll through that. So continue on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there, there's two factors at play with reverse cap. Um, and, and they're actually, they have about an equal contribution to the historical alpha. And when I say historical alpha, it's all back tested. Um, since the day we launched this fund, it is underperformed during the whole FANG run. But that's the nature of the fund. It's always anti-cyclical. Before the global financial crisis, it looked like an anti-financials fund. When financials got out of whack in the S&P, today it looks like an anti-technicals fund, just as it did, by the way, before the dot-com bubble. Um, and there will be a day where that strategy and other people who are value investors will be rewarded for that. But you know, there could be some pain between now and then. You don't know when that comes. Um, but the two factors are, you know, one of them is size. So it's, you know, small minus big. It's, it's the, you know, it's just, you're tilting by uh, size. So it's the inverse of the market cap. So what you get is, if you think about, let's say the, the, the average market cap of an S&P 500 company is 200 billion, right? So if you have apples at 2 trillion, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's say then it's 10 times higher on the other end of the spectrum, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be a lot closer to the mean on the low end than you will with the outliers on the high end. So you end up when you do the reciprocal, the top weights tend to be a rebalance about, you know, 60 to 75 basis points of an allocation. You end up with a distribution that's much, much, you know, less, uh, less concentrated and, and, and much more well diversified. Um, so you've got this small cap tilt within them. You've got a, a whole basket of these are, you know, the S and P 500 constituents. See, these aren't small cap companies. And if you read the research on small cap, you know, you've got the amazing Asnes paper, um, you know, size matters if you can control your junk, right? And Larry Swedro has something similar where he says, yeah, the small cap premium does in fact exist, but you have to only if you can avoid what he calls lottery stocks. And the idea is that in, you know, small and micro cap, you know, the, the valuation, so you're, you're judging everything by size. Well, the size is the market cap. It's all being pushed around with thin volume and thin, you know, thin liquidity. Um, so you can get into some names that you don't even want to be into. Well, by limiting the size till two large cap, two S&P constituent, you've got, you know, that's your quality filter. So you're saying you're going to do size tilt within large cap, then it plays out. Then you don't have the junk or the lotto ticket issues. Um, and the size tilt has contributed historically about half of the alpha. But the other factor is more interesting. The other factor is mean reversion. And if you think about it, let's take equal weight because it's a little easier to visualize, right? You've got um, uh, an equal weight fund. You've got 500 stocks. Everything has a 20 basis point allocation. Um, and then, you know, bell rings and, and everything trades for a quarter. And some go up and some go down, right? At the end of the quarter, you rebounce, you sell the winners and you, uh, and you buy up the losers. You true them all back up to equal, right? Now everything's a 20 basis point. Well, in a trending market, right? The winners, you don't want to rebalance them. You want them to run. You want to be heavier in them. And you don't want to buy all your losers. You want to have less of your losers in a trending market. But in a mean reverting market, that's exactly what you want to do. And more often than not, the market has acted in a mean reversion uh, factor. So if you go to reverse cap, you say even more so, we're going to, we're going to, when, if the portfolio gets out of whack, we're going to rebalance it. We're going to allocate more money into the smaller allocations, which are either companies coming into the S&P or companies who have dropped. And the ones that have run away to the upside, we're going to take profit there. And we're going to reallocate the profit back to the stocks with the most room to run. And historically, that has provided, is really, it's amazing. It's almost equal uh, from 
you know, distilled down. And, and uh, there's a great S&P paper on their indexology blog on this. Um, and we've run the numbers ourselves at Exponential. Um, you know, just the attribution of those two factors. Um, it's, it's amazing how it's almost equal, 50-50 split between those two. Okay. So, yeah. So, the re- that's your, it's sort of the rebalancing premium. You're, you're also sort of implying that there is this mean reversionary dynamic at play as well, right? Um, yep. But I think you're basically referring to the rebalancing premium or rebalancing bonus or gamma scalping or whatever. There's a bunch of different names for it. Um, and so, so y- you maximize the rebalancing premium with, with equal weight. Um, but I think, so, so I think your thesis is you get a lot more rebalancing bonus from your reverse weight. Cause it's, it's not actually reverse weight. It's one over the market cap weight, right? Isn't that how you do it? Yeah. So actually your the, the Gini index of your reverse weight is not, is not, is much smaller than the Gini index of the S&P, right? You do have a lot more weight diversity in reverse than you get um, in the in the S&P 500. Yeah, very um, much. It's really not reverse weight. It's inverse weight, but we can yeah. inverse because inverse in ETFs is how they call the negative one beta, negative two beta funds. Yeah, you right. don't want to be mixed up with yeah, that. With yeah. reverse. But we don't just flip the names. We take, like you said, reciprocal of the market cap and then yeah. just weight everything by the sum of the reciprocals. Right. And so that's a much more diverse portfolio than the the cap weighted portfolio. And for sure you are emphasizing small, smaller names. Um, and so did you, how did you compute? Do you remember how you computed the rebalancing premium there? Did you, did you uh, take the weighted average of the constituent compound returns and the weighted average of the portfolio returns and the difference there was the rebalancing premium? Yeah, we took the performance of the the funds that we exactly the funds that we bought up that we had to, uh, or the funds, the stocks, the stocks that we yeah. uh, that we had to true up, and the ones that we took profit from. Um, I'm trying to remember the S and P methodology. It's escaping my mind. The S and P ran the same study on their equal weight, and it's on their indexology blog. Mm-hmm. And but we did it a little bit differently. Man, it's it a few yeah, years. Yeah, no, it's um, you write a lot of papers and you do a lot of analysis, and and some of it just inevitably leaks. I got to go chase down that uh, S and P paper because uh, I'm writing a, uh, my own paper on the rebalancing premium at the moment with the in the context of risk parity but um i'm i'm fascinated by the whole concept at the moment so i'm I just want, well, when we did factor attribution well when we did factor attribution on it it was weird because a lot of the people a lot of the the data sources use equal weight or the equal weight to, to market cap weight premium as their defining factor for for size within large cap which you know again to us is ridiculous so you know we we looked at deciles another interesting thing that we looked at was um, you know, we use the S and P. Um, and if you if you did if we did just the rules based top five hundred by market cap and then reciprocal of weight um, instead of using the S and P holdings. So typically, the S and P the overlap between the S and P five hundred and the top five hundred just rules based top five hundred by market cap with no index committee or criteria. Um, there's an overlap of typically it it changes about typically about four hundred and twenty of the stocks will overlap, and of the eighty that don't. It's usually the smaller names anyway. So in the in the S and P version, you're still getting something extreme. I mean, once in a while you'll have a Tesla or something that will have uh, some sort of material impact on performance that didn't make it in or that made it in that should have. But for the most part, it's not going to have much of an impact. But what we found, we did we ran a test on a basket of just those eighty. So every every rebalance period in the S and P, we took the companies that would not have made the rules based version 
against the companies that would have, but, but you know, that weren't in. And we ran, we ran performance on that because what we wanted to show was that by using the S&P, there is uh, a built-in, um, there's, there's built-in um, quality loading yeah, there. Quality yeah. and, and uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, not downside protection, but, but there, there is, it was a stabilizing force. The amount of money, just the trillions of dollars benchmarked to the S&P, um, it, it, we didn't see anything in, the, in up markets, but in down markets, we saw that those names had some artificial support. Um, which we attribute to the S&P index inclusion. Interesting. I love it. Um, I, I don't know if you saw, there was a, a paper, Corey shot it over to me earlier this week, and I think he, he dropped it in Twitter uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, but where the authors looked at the, the old um, research affiliates, fundamental indexes. And because I had never seen this before, somebody using the rebalancing premium as a, an explanatory factor in a traditional kind of factor regression. And these authors showed that the rebalancing premium completely explained all of the returns to the fundamental, the fundamental indexes. Um, and so all of the loadings on value and quality and et cetera were completely irrelevant and that the rebalancing bonus was the, was the entire juice. Um, and uh, so it's, it's neat to see that you have, you know, observed something similar. Um, and I know that your, the reverse again, is not, it's not equal weighted. The equal weighted is will under certain assumptions, maximize the rebalancing premium under different assumptions. The minimum variance portfolio will, will maximize the rebalancing premium for, for stocks. Um, but still it's like, I, I hadn't heard anybody else do that kind of decomposition before. So I'm, I'm uh, interested to hear that you've done that and that you found out those results. That's very neat. Um, so what's, uh, what other ideas did you have for products that, that didn't quite make it into ETFs? I'm curious. I, I got a lot of ideas. And what I found is that the ideas, product ideas, are just not that valuable. So I may as well throw them out because people don't care. But, you know, it, it's fun. I mean, the idea that you can, you know, sit there in a lab and, you know, be clever and come up with something that, you know, that you could just then run a product indefinitely based on the, you know, the rules that you set out in the index is, is pretty cool. You know, it's, it, it's pretty great. And again, for most of my career in the ETF space, that was like a very viable thing. So, you know, you're at a company like Ridex in the early days, if you come up with a, you know, a smarter way to, you know, define value and you just filter and sort and, and, and there you go, you're off to the races. Um, you know, obviously, you know, everyone, everyone jokes and it's a fair, fair joke about, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, back test performance versus actual live performance. And I think it's a, just a very um, natural thing that if, if, you need several people to sign off on an ETF launch, right? Internally, there's probably a product committee and a, an investment officer portfolio. You know, you've got you've got a bunch of smart people together, and you've got market makers, and you've got stakeholders, and you have a board. and And if you're going to launch a fund, you know, people want to see that it works. And what does it mean that it works? It means that the back test is good. So if you take two strategies, let's say two sides of the same coin, right? Let's say let's say market cap or reverse cap, or let's say uh, you know growth, mom, uh, let's say momentum and value, right? Um, you're going to, by, by nature, you're going to launch the one that is coming off of the better back-tested period, right? Because that's the one, oh, yeah, look, it works. So, you know, look, look at the back-test. The thesis makes sense. It's not like people are data mining or just running back-tests for the sake of running back-tests. But you have a thesis that makes sense. And then you've got data that says that it works and it launches. And in reality, you've got these regime cyclicalities. So the minute you launch it, 
you're at the tail end of that regime, and all of a sudden you start underperforming. But you know, something that I really wanted to do uh, a year ago was uh, a, a high-yield fixed income fund that by rule just filtered and, and sorted by um, debt service coverage ratio. Because you know, at the end of the day, everything I've done, single factor, super simple. And what I like about this factor is if I'm going to own paper that I'm nervous about, the only factor I really care about more than, I mean, debt service coverage, right? Can they pay off their debt? Right. I mean, it really doesn't get more simple than that. And if you look at defaults and you look at downgrades in the, in the, in the corporate space, um, it, it can be very telling. That was pretty conclusive, at least on the tail end, on the down end. Um, a very bad DSCR was was conclusively um, uh, linked to downgrades and defaults. A very good one versus a pretty good one didn't really have much of a result for us. But just by taking out the bottom two deciles, we we had a pretty material difference on performance. Um, we came close to launching it. I, you know, I never did. We, we had one seed investor, but ultimately from a commercial standpoint, you know, we just found distribution to be too challenging and expensive on the ETF side. Um, so we, uh, we never went that way. We built out instead on the capital market side and, and built it out those other services. Um, trying to think off the top of my head, the, the one that I really wanted to do also, I guess about now two or three years ago was currency wars. Um, I really wanted something that would capture uh, what I expected to be increasing volatility in the FX market that never really came to pass or never really came to pass yet. But I thought that was going to be a big play before the trade wars. Um, and, you know, when the trade wars, I was like, oh, we should have launched it. I think we had the ticker or war or wars or something. I, I might still have it, um, you know, but, but uh, it never really happened. Uh, we, we never, I mean, really the gating issue there is we never really cracked the code on, you know, any index methodology that would have captured what we're trying to capture. So increasing volume on the FX side was was too difficult to do, or at least we, we didn't figure it out. Um, Seems like now might be the prime time for, for something like that happening. But I, I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole. I mean, this is... Hit him. You guys can have it. All yours. And listener, whoever wants it, I'd love to see it happen. You know, it's, uh, like I said, my days of launching ETFs, uh, at least for now, are over. So, um, you know, would love to see it happen in one way or another. Would you, you throw know, in but, some gold and Bitcoin in there as well? Just curious if, if that's where your that, mind That was another idea we had. The SHTF, we got the ticker, shit hits the fan. Right, the <laughs> um, you know, but I've long wanted to do something that that captures inflation in, in a in a truer, you know, in a more accurate way than I think most of the inflationary, you know, than tips does or, or most of the inflationary measures of products. Um, I mean, there's still a lot to do. Look, you look at the alternative space, um, completely underdeveloped in the 40x side and mutual funds and ETFs. A lot of opportunity there in the alternatives. Um, I think, you know, like I said, the FX space has got some opportunity. There's some some really cool products that came out recently. Uh, you know, um, uh, ADRs that are that are currency hedged, and again, it's the kind of thing where people don't really think about it until it's too late. You look at you know what happened with Wisdom Tree with DXJ; it was so successful as a hedge, right? When the dollar is working one way, then when the dollar goes the other way, you find out well nobody was really hedging; they were just trying to enhance their performance and, and hop on the the dollar trade. So, um, but I think the FX bet that's embedded into any equity bet is, you know, really unrelated and should be hedged. So maybe someone will be able to convince investors of that. Yeah, right. Um, any other awesome products out there that you um, are, you know, you think are pretty cool for the ETF wrapper? I'm a big fan of SWAN, S-W-A-N, um, Black Swan Fund. So it's, uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a tails event fund. It's a protection from a tails event. And the way they're going about it is really interesting. So rather than buy puts, what they're doing is, Getting the beta through um, through a, a long option strategy, 
And then um, 90% of the 90% of the allocation is just sitting in treasuries, long dated treasuries. So um, what you get net net, it depends on the market environment. You get about 70% beta on the upside, and then you're capped at 10% downside because of the treasuries. Uh, so I just think it's a very elegant way and, and, and a very you know, interesting way of providing downside protection. Um, trying to think what else there's, uh, I don't know, you know, my, my, my mind, I'm trying to, I'm trying to forget everything I ever knew about ETFs right now. It's a little bit of PTSD going on. <laughs> well, what are the, what are the challenges with a low rate environment for annuities? I mean, that, that, I, that's gotta be yeah. something I, I, I have you, have you thought about that as you're thinking about your new role? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and that's a challenge, but I, you know, there's a lot to do on the variable annuity side. And again, it's yet to be determined if we are going to be um, a sponsor of our own annuities right now. Um, you know, we're focusing on distributing existing annuities for some of the other insurance companies. We may, we might create proprietary product, but we might not. So uh, we'll see. Uh, obviously, as you guys could tell from this conversation, um, I love it. The product development side, the financial uh, securitization side, I, you know, I truly love. And I think it's got such a bad, such a bad rap, you know, from, you know, a global financial crisis. And there's so much skepticism about anything new and different in the financial product space. But I think that's really unfortunate. And I think ultimately the goal of any good product developer in the, in the financial space, the goal is to create, you know, better funds, new funds that make sense, that make sense to you and to the clients. And I think for the most part, that is what happens. And, uh, you know, that's always, it's always fun to, to you know, it's something I will probably get back into in some capacity. Maybe maybe we could just come back to that whole entrepreneurial side as we kind of wrap. I know we're just over an hour here, so we set the stage for for wrapping up. I always like to, you know, when I had when my kids were younger, I would tell them, okay, we have to leave, but knowing that we didn't have to leave for a half an hour. So I would prepare them for the fact that we didn't have to leave. But and then in half an hour we could leave on time. I actually do have to leave because I've got I've got people who hear oh, fixing their conditioners go. and it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a big racket, but I might just mute and stay on and then I'll okay. come back. <laughs> well, I'm just wondering, there, there's actually a really interesting question in, in the questions, which which is if you could swap jobs with anyone for a month and get all their skills, who would you pick? Which is is really interesting. I thought, well, maybe we'll wrap with a little bit of, you know, um, we're all entrepreneurs. We're all in the financial services world. We've all had various roles. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, how do you, how do you, there, I have a couple of other add-ons. Do you have any thoughts on, on that, Phil? Does anyone jump into your mind? I mean, there's two ways to answer that, right? So if I could, if I could, you know, wave my magic wand and do so, you know, I'd love, I'd love to go into the Fed one day, take Jay Powell's seat and, and, you know, change change course on a number of things. I think that would be, would that be fun? No, absolutely would not be fun. Um, you know, I, 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 I love uh, a global macro. I'd say to be um, a proprietary, you know, answered nobody, unconstrained global macro investor where I can be in, you know, Indonesian equities one day and I could be in copper the next day and I could be short the yen. I mean, like, you know, to go wherever you want to go um, as a, uh, as a macro uh, freestyle trader just seems like a lot of stress. <laughs> well, I, I can see, I can see Richard, I, Richard's eyes lighting up too. Soros, Drucken Miller. I thought he was going to describe Hugh Hendry. That's right. Hugh Henry. I thought that's what he was going for. That's great. Well, you, what about you, Richard? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I got to say, uh, living the dream in St. Bart's doing the global <laughs> macro thing was, uh, was where my mind was going at. That's that's really interesting. I actually, it's a that's a tough question. Actually, I, I don't know. I kind of think, uh, I don't know. Sitting in Bill Pel, being Bill Belichick for a little while might be kind of neat. 
<laughs> little little sports action. Well, Steve on. Jones bought the Mets, and and yeah, may, maybe I'll take that one. Be a yeah. manager of the Mets and try to finally get them, you know, get them somewhere. There you go. There you go. Love it. I love it. Adam's coming back. He'll have something. Uh, he'll have something. You know. did, did you what hear? Did what we were just talking about the, the the last question was the um uh. If you could swap at, jobs oh, with anyone for a month and get all their skills, would you pick? Oh my God, we went there. We yeah, did. well, we're wrapping up with the entrepreneurial, aspirational. Okay. All right. So you have, Jim you have to answer, Adam. Anyone else? We're, we're waiting Jim Simons. There you go. Jim Simons. Yeah. No, he was he was open. Everyone else wanted a discretionary global macro, and I wanted to coach a football <laughs> team. <laughs> so I wanted to be Bill Belichick, and they wanted to be Hugh Henry and George Soros. <laughs> Oh wow! Fantastic. Two aspiring Fantastic. global macro traders yeah. over here. Yeah. Who knew? So well, any I knew, any I knew Richard was, but yeah, yeah. Any other? So as you're starting up this new uh, insurance game, have you thought about sort of? Uh, and I'll just we'll wrap with this. But when you think about that entrepreneurial nature of a firm versus a more uh, bureaucratic nature of a firm, and then attracting the right personnel into those firms. Right, so that you've got a right fit and match. Have you given any thought to, of that to um, to the rollout here? So, so thinking, I'm thinking of sort of, uh, you know, you've got the Patriots way, you've got Netflix that that sort of did a did a slide share. If anyone hasn't seen that, it's it's pretty worthwhile to read. And basically, everyone wanted to work at at Netflix until they got to Netflix, and then you know, I think, I think is it is it Reed, it's Hoffman or Hastings. I forget, I get those two guys confused. Reed Hastings. Reed Hastings. So he did this slide share deck, right? That said, well, hey, by the way, I know everyone wants to come, but here's the actual things that happen in Netflix and here's how you're going to feel comfortable. So if you're over here, it, it's not going to be comfortable for you. So can you offer any insights there? Have you thought about that? Mission, mission, vision type stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it is so critical, especially, you know, now, I, I, you know, got a few gray hairs and I've, I've been in this game for a little bit and seeing the difference. I'm just myself, the different places I've been being happy when I feel like I'm with like-minded people who get it, who get me, I get them where, you know, the, versus being in a, an organization where it's not the right fit for everyone, for them, for me, it's just, it's the night and day difference. I'm joining a team here that's already up and running. And the reason why I'm joining them is because they are very much like-minded in the way, the way I see the world. And um, I mean, that was, that was so critical. I, I, I made a list said, okay, look, I, I don't think I can do this alone right now. The entrepreneurship thing, I was trying to, you know, raise capital for the sec lending business plan and it was COVID and I'm doing these Zoom calls and it's just, it was so hard to put it all together. I, you know, I reached a point and said, look, I need, I need a team. I need other people who are behind me. I need good investors, you know, the right, the right whole total package in order to pull this off at this time. And I made a list of, of places I wanted to go. And there were two, Two or three, really two and a half, I guess, a lot of story, but, but, but places where I wanted to go. And this was number one of the list of, of really two. So, you know, very much like minded, uh, entrepreneurial minded, uh, you know, go getters. And, and, you know, I just wrote this uh, post about joining, you know, people with chips on the shoulder, like Josh Wolf says, chips on the shoulder, put chips in the pockets. Uh, people that are willing to, you know, really fight and, and to, you know, when appropriate, but, you know, to, to really, you know, make sure that this thing succeeds and, and to, you know, and, and to go all in. And, and that's, that's what was really critically important to me. And uh, I'm really, really glad to have found it. Love it. What do you think? Sounds like a great place to wrap up. Yeah. Sounds great, man. Thank you guys. This was great. Let's get yeah. at it. Appreciate Phil. Appreciate yeah. it, man. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story. And um, 
some great insights. Thanks for coming. Good so, to meet you, uh, Phil. My pleasure, guys. Thank you, and have a yeah. great weekend. Have a great weekend to the audience. Yeah, you too, and everybody. You too. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.